listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. This is Aaron Fishman coming to you just ahead of the NBA regular season with an interview that is very near and dear to my heart with the passionate and eloquent Dave Zire. All of us who have played, coached, or been around sports of any kind know the discipline's many redeeming qualities. Things like its ability to foster camaraderie, teamwork, and self-esteem, or to model how to overcome adversity. Much of sports' power is derived from its capacity to uplift. In a vacuum, however, sports can seem pretty meaningless, especially in times as turbulent as these. In early July 2016, a quartet of WNBA players from the Minnesota Lynx called a pregame press conference to discuss police violence in the wake of the Alton Sterling and Philando Castile killings in consecutive days more WNBA protests, and an ESPY speech from four of the NBA's brightest stars kept the movement going. About a month later, 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick first kneeled during the anthem, although he didn't gain national attention for the practice until nearly two weeks later. This is a long-winded way of saying that the pro-athlete protest movement, designed to remind, scratch that, to demand that Black Lives Matter, was in full effect heading into the fall of 2016. When Donald Trump was elected president after a vile, racist campaign, the protests were only picking up steam. Here we are more than a year later, and much anticipation grows over the movement's next steps with the NBA season fast approaching. The league's most prominent players and star coaches are unafraid to challenge the president, or more broadly, the unacceptable status quo. Generally progressive Adam Silver has in many ways encouraged vocal activism, but he's also recently emphasized the league's long-standing rule requiring players to stand during the anthem. Dave Zirin, author, sports editor for The Nation, and host of the Edge of Sports podcast, has graciously agreed to join me for an insightful discussion featuring many issues surrounding NBA player advocacy in these wild times we're living in. Quick fun fact digression. Dave, just five foot ten, was the starting center for his high school basketball team. Teammates were taller, but none of them wanted to play down low, so he took the spot. I want to thank all of you who are listening out there, because this is an important discussion ahead. Before we jump into it, and I promise I'll stop talking soon, I want to say three things. First, this wasn't mentioned in the upcoming interview, but Nuggets guard Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf was a pioneer of sorts, refusing to stand for the national anthem in 1996, claiming the flag was, quote, a symbol of oppression, of tyranny. Second, Michael Jordan will be mentioned as a contrast to LeBron James for his unwillingness to rock the boat during his playing days, instead opting to avoid controversy in public appearances. While that is certainly true, I'd like to commend Jordan for his $7 million donation to Charlotte Medical Clinics earlier this week. Finally, I'm grateful for Dave's time and insight, but due to time constraints, 
there was one question I didn't get to ask him. Namely, President Trump seems to be gripping tightly a more traditional view of masculinity. It's sexist and macho, lacking compassion and emphasizing power, control, ego, and bravado. Interestingly enough, it's actually now the pro-athletes, in a lot of cases, who are countering this view. So I'm wondering, how can we become more compassionate as sports consumers? I'll be thinking about that a lot over the coming weeks, and I hope you can as well. Without further ado, the main event begins now. First of all, it's an honor to be joined by you, Dave. You've done really quality and, more importantly, meaningful work for a long time. I'm worried, though, that you're going to run out of material for your yeah. columns and podcasts. Do you have enough stuff to do these days? Gee, yeah, it's been it's been really calm these days. Not not too much <laughs> happening on the sports politics front. A real <laughs> snoozer. Yeah, it's great to talk to you, though. So the first thing, stick to sports. That phrase has become all too common in our social lexicon. Thankfully, you've never done that. Jamel Hill is another one of many who haven't. And that's a whole nother episode about what's happening with her and ESPN. But late night comedian Jimmy Kimmel is now getting a version of this. Stick to being funny. Stick to sports is used to disparage sports writers and athletes who, according to this logic, should focus strictly on what's happening on the field and little else. I think it dehumanizes the person by claiming he or she doesn't have the same stake in society that every other citizen has. And it's also, in my opinion, a form of insulting their intelligence. What's your understanding of why we can't afford to stick to sports as a society? Yeah, I mean, this is where we are right now. Um, as a society. And I think what we have to figure out and what we have to say is pretty simple. When you say stick to sports, when you say shut up and play, what you're really saying basically is shut up and entertain me. Now, if that really is going to be our approach, then I would ask the reality TV show host in the White House to please step down from the office and go back to being a witless TV personality and let people who actually know how to govern do the work of governing this country. I mean, there is no stay in your lane at this point. All the rules are gone. Uh, And I think the very existence of Donald Trump should remove this idea even as a debate. But the reason why you've heard it step up in recent years is precisely because we have this Donald Trump racist backlash taking place in this country. And part of this racist backlash involves squelching voices of dissent. And I would argue there has been no cultural sphere uh, quite like the world of sports in terms of being a center of anti-racist activism. It has been the voice, the clarion call, the moral conscience about racism in the United States over the last five years, dating back, I would argue, uh, to the killing of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman. And this is something that is actually a necessity for Donald Trump to try to smash uh, for the purposes of pursuing a racist agenda. And also it serves a second function as well. And that's to, you know, distract, divide and demonize, which is really all his lizard brain knows how to do. And so, you know, what, what he's doing is this approach of stick to sports, stand for the anthem While at the same time, not only is his own record on patriotism pretty horrifying, uh, but also just if you look at the very basic issues that most people think he should be concerned about, Puerto Rico, uh, DACA, 
uh, the wildfires in California, uh, he's nowhere to be found. He's absolutely AWOL. So many valid points there. And you're right, stick to sports is used so selectively when when someone or a group of people don't agree with a perspective raised and it's used to squelch dissent. You talked about the current president, Donald Trump, and obviously the campaign that he ran starting in 2015 and his election has played a huge role in this. But what else in your mind is contributing to this current landscape where sports and its near ubiquitous intersection with social and political issues is just going crazy right now? Um, so you're asking like why it's going crazy right now in particular? Yeah, in addition to the, the rise of Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, you can't certainly separate the rise of Donald right. Trump from this. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's just let's go back uh, for a moment to what's happened in this country in recent years. I think the reason why it's exploded in recent years, honestly, is that a lot of these athletes um, are millennials and millennials are just far less patient to deal with oppression than previous generations have been. So think about what it means to be a millennial for a second. You've grown up in this country and all you've really known is you know, Columbine and 9-11 and then eight years of an Obama administration where there were so many promises of hope and change and yet the administration, by the time it's ending, you have the Black Lives Matter movement, which I would argue grows precisely because the election of Barack Obama was not enough uh, to actually bring us to some sort of, if not post-racial place, at least to an improved place when it comes to the actual conditions of people of color and black Americans in this country. And then Donald Trump out of that actually represents this kind of backlash. And so it starts by understanding the, why the Black Lives Matter movement developed in the first place and how that ricocheted into the world of sports on a generational level with athletes who have that same feeling of impatience about their place in the world. Mm-hmm. And then you have old man Trump reacting to that. And of course, now the battle has been joined. You're talking to a millennial also right now. And LeBron James, of course, a millennial as well. And so the next thing I want to talk to you about is the difference between a guy like LeBron James and his peers around the NBA and Michael Jordan, who handled controversial issues very differently. Jordan was infamously diplomatic and uncontroversial back in the day. And there's really a changing calculus of speaking up. LeBron James recently called Donald Trump a bum after he disinvited Stephen Curry and the Warriors to the White House. And James doesn't just name call. He offers eloquent supporting arguments So in addition to the impact of social media, and I think that's been huge, why do you think we're seeing this now as opposed to what we saw from Jordan then? Well, I think that there are a lot of reasons, some of which we've already touched upon. I mean, first and foremost, I think there is the generational issue. And I mean, one of the things that Michael Jordan once said in an interview is that one of the reasons why he didn't speak out is because he was born after the civil rights movement. So he didn't have to deal with the things that his father and grandfather had to deal with. It wasn't his reality. Um, And Michael Jordan also, I think this is part of it, grew up in a very stable two-parent home in their own house in Wilmington, North Carolina. That's very different from LeBron James, you know, who grew up in a single-parent home and for a brief period was even living in a car with his mother. 
I mean, so there's a class issue there too, where LeBron is coming up having known the sting of poverty and known what it feels like to be hungry, um, literally hungry in a way that Michael Jordan did not. I think that's part of it. Some of it is the generational issue that we talked about. Some of it is certainly the issue of social media and the ability to speak directly to fans about how you feel. And some of it is... Honestly, that LeBron James wants to be, as he put it years ago, a global icon like Muhammad Ali. So this goes back to LeBron at age 19. That's how old he was when he said that. Mm-hmm. And now he's a 32, 33-year-old man. And you know, th- this is, I believe he turns 33 this year uh, during the season. And, and so this has always been part of his DNA. This has always been a part of the kind of legacy that he wanted to leave. So while LeBron James, I would argue, has been strongly affected by the Black Lives Matter movement, by social media, um, he's also somebody who came into the league with this idea of thinking to himself, I want to be a global icon like Ali. I don't want to be defined just by my bank account, but the kind of political contribution that I can leave behind. To me, it's inspiring to see, and I think it unquestionably has had an effect on encouraging other players around the league to speak up. One fact I also wanted to point out is the average NBA salary right now is around $8.5 million. If we adjust for inflation in Michael Jordan's rookie season, it was around 760000 And so one thing that retired players raise is that it was riskier to speak up then. That's one argument that I've heard. Moving on, I think it's important to emphasize the impact of the WNBA and many of its players on this burgeoning protest movement. What can you tell me about that? You mean what's going to happen in the NBA because of this movement? I was going to get to that a little later, but, but how important, how much credit does the WNBA, its teams, and a lot of its players deserve for doing this months before Colin Kaepernick took his first knee during the anthem. Oh, sure. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I miss, I miss her. It's so funny because just because I misheard the W part in WNBA, (laughs) it skewed the whole question. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, and look, the WNBA and I've written about this consistently um, has been remarkable from jump in terms of attempting to put out there a set of protest politics Now, I think one of the reasons that it was so out front with this um, is precisely because the WNBA play their season over the summer. And that this is like the summer of 2016 is Mm -hmm. really critical to understand as we talk about all these issues, because that's when Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were killed on back to back days. And it was caught on camera and it was something that people saw. And then you had, you know, the shooting um, in Texas of the police officers. I mean, so, so you had all of this incredible amount of tension. You had, you know, LeBron James and Chris Paul and Carmelo and, and D. Wade speak at the ESPY Awards. But so it's in that context that you have WNBA players say, you know, we need to do something about this. And it was very telling that one of the teams was, of course, the Minnesota Lynx. Okay. You know, and that's where Philando Castile lived. That's where his community was. And that's where he was murdered by, uh, by the police. So all of this is, I think, the context is critical to understand. And, so, and their credit is also very important. What's so important about the WNBA players 
is they also laid down a template that I think NBA players this season are going to need to try to either follow or build off of. Because remember what happened is that they were um, fined by WNBA Commissioner Lisa Borders. And let me be very clear about this. There's no way she does that without the say-so of Adam Silver. No way. Mm -hmm. And when Lisa Borders put down those fines, which were small fines, but very symbolic, uh, the team said they would, players said they would refuse to pay them. And players like Carmelo Anthony had their back and said they shouldn't pay them. And they didn't pay them. And then the fines were rescinded. Uh, Fast forward to 2017 in this year's WNBA uh, finals. I mean, you notice that until the last game of the Sparks Link series, the Sparks spent the national anthem in the locker room. So they were doing their protest. Now, what makes the NBA and the, and the NFL different, although this might change even by the time you broadcast this, is that the NBA has very specific guidelines about what to do during the anthem. And the language is very clear about what they must do, stand at attention during the anthem. The NFL, it uses the word should. This is what players should do. And so that's why players have said, hey, we have every right, if we want to, during the anthem, to sit, to raise a fist, uh, to take a knee. We can do whatever we want. There's no rule that says we cannot. Uh, Like I said, this may change even by the time, hey, maybe even by the time we're done with this interview, that can change. (laughs) But what the WNBA players did was effective during these last NBA finals, what the Sparks did was basically to dare the WNBA to find them and they did not. And the WNBA, I should say, has the same rules about the anthem as the NBA. So now NBA players are starting this season. They're going to want to speak out. Uh, there's already been uh, a kind of an anthem protest with J.R. Smith standing a couple of steps back from the other Cleveland Cavaliers. So, you know, we'll see what happens, but I think they laid down a template already that says that the WNBA players that says, well, you know, how can Adam Silver find them or punish them for doing an anthem protest if they didn't do it to us? Yeah, I'm glad you talked about the rescinded fines. Just to fill in a couple of details really quickly, three WNBA teams, the New York Liberty, Indiana Fever, and Phoenix Mercury, and every single player on those teams were fined. As you said, it was a small amount, but the league said it was for violating the league's uniform um, policy And it was while they were protesting police brutality and unequal treatment under the law. And so they stood firm, as you mentioned, lots going on behind the scenes that some of us will never know. But they ended up winning. The fines got rescinded. And um, again, as you alluded to, they continue the protest movement to this day. They've been really important in the cause. You kind of just touched upon this right now, but it seems like. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver is walking a fine line. He and Michelle Roberts, who's the executive director of the Players Association, they issued a joint memo. And I believe that was a couple of weeks ago in late September that encouraged players to make their voices heard on societal issues. And then a couple of days after, reiterated that players should stand for the anthem. And he cited the longstanding rule that you just mentioned What exactly is this balance that Adam Silver has to navigate? And if you can also just touch upon how the league's unique political and social environment differs so much from those of the NFL and MLB. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, the NFL is a hot mess. Let's start with that. Um, Roger Goodell is an absolutely awful commissioner. He's a meat puppet for the 32 NFL owners. He can't do his job. He's terrible at it. And this is even, I'm saying this, independent of politics and what he does. Everything is reactive. Everything is, what do I do now? The players, many of whom I know, I'm I'm writing a book with one right now, Michael Bennett, uh, they don't respect him. Um, And they don't respect him because he doesn't... Um, deserve respect. You know, he hasn't earned any respect because he's so clearly an empty suit. The same way a couple of weeks ago, he said, um, you know, that NFL players would be protected if they wanted to protest during the anthem. Now he's saying something entirely different. He has no power. He has no sway. He's a meat puppet. Adam Silver is very different. He is the NBA commissioner. Players do respect him. Um, even if they know he's on the other side and works for the owners, they think he has the best interests of the league and the best interests of them as players at heart. That's a huge difference. That trust factor is so huge. And part of what that trust factor means is that Adam Silver can issue a joint statement with Michelle Roberts about them working together to help players find a way to uh, you know, do social justice work. And what's so interesting is, and this was not a coincidence, is that they put that letter out to coincide with the opening week of the NFL season. And it was totally like, pardon the mixed sports metaphor, a high tight fastball (laughs) on the NFL. Like, hi, your league is mired in dysfunction. You know, you can't even get your union leader and Roger Demora Smith and Roger Goodell. Um, You know, you could barely get them in the same room, let alone writing a letter together about the importance of social justice. I mean, give me a break. So that, that they're also trying to, I think, send a message like to young fans, to these very millennials, who, by the way, are also much more likely to support the NFL protesters to say, hey, our league is actually a place where we don't demonize our own players. So, you know, come on in and join the fun. Now, this is going to get challenged, though, if there are actual anthem protests. You know, there's that old expression, you don't know if you're wearing chains until you try to move. And we're going to see if NBA players actually try to move and sort of explore the studio space of whether or not, you know, they have the capacity to to protest. Now, you asked a question, though, about one of what makes the NBA and NFL different. I mean, so one of the things is what I just described about like a, a much looser political atmosphere. Fans, according to polls and studies I've seen, are also more left of center than NFL fans. But there's another part of it that I think is really important, and that's that the NBA has spent several generations, I mean, dating back to, to David Stern in the, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s, like what the NBA has done is they've marketed the player, not the team. The players are the stars, not the teams. The NFL has done the opposite. And I understand why the NFL has done the opposite, because any play can be your last. So if you build everybody up on this idea of saying, you know, don't root for the Steelers, root for Le'Veon Bell, and then Le'Veon Bell's out for six weeks, you're going to really hurt mm-hmm. yourself. But you can say, you know, don't root for the Dubs, root for Steph Curry, or, you know, be a Chris Paul fan, whether he's on the Clippers or the Rockets, and th- that can actually be financially sustainable. And so, but because they've done that, that also means that uh, that these NBA players have a tremendous amount of cultural capital, um, and people know them and want to hear from them. And oh, by the way, I'll throw this down for you too. The guaranteed contracts don't yeah, hurt. Yeah, definitely is something important to mention. So you just mentioned Stephen Curry. So in kind of what I like to think of as a, you can't not go to my party because you're no longer invited move. Donald Trump disinvited Curry and the Warriors to the White House. 
even though there was serious doubt as to whether any of the team would be in t- attending anyway. I know very becoming of the office of the presidency. But anyway, along those lines, traditionally the president of the United States holds a ceremonial role of uniting the country in times of tragedy or division. At the very least, not seeking to actively further divide. We're now seeing... Yeah, those days are done. <laughs> yeah, we're now seeing the diminishing power and prestige of the presidency regarding all these things as they relate to sports too, like White House visits for champions, it being in vogue to just go so directly and publicly after the president. To what extent, and this requires some speculation on your end, but do you think this erosion could be salvageable post-Trump? First, let me be very clear. I just hope there's a post-Trump. <laughs> And if there is a post-Trump, I will be so damn relieved that I won't really care who goes to the White House and do who doesn't. But on the idea that there is a post-Trump and that we have a future, um, I think it's really important to say that I think that there will be a thirst for unity. Mm-hmm. And I think that'll create conditions that will create have teams go to the White House because and that's not even to say that I necessarily agree with people doing these White House photo ops. I mean, they're, they're, they're these political stage shows aimed to buttress administrations who uniformly, Trump or not, tend to do terrible things. But I also think that it's wrong to think that athletes are going to either lead massive social justice movements or be the only voice um, out there uh, fighting for social justice. And so we can't be like asking the athletes to lead us. Uh, Because at the end of the day, you know, these are folks who um, have a very short amount of time in the spotlight to make most of the money they'll ever make in their entire life. And they usually support wide swaths of people around them. And so if we're constantly in this posture of asking them to sacrifice, we're going to end up extremely disappointed. I think that's a good point. Whether or not, though, you agree with the White House visits, I think it's just another example of how unprecedented these times are in the past. Whether an athlete agreed or disagreed with the president's policies, they'd go. They'd go to the the White House, show respect for the office. It's happened before Trump, but very rarely, nothing like what we're seeing right now. And I want to transition to the fearless NBA coaches we've seen, arguably leading the charge among the NBA community, talking about serious issues. Greg Popovich, definitely Steve Kerr, Stan Van Gundy, David Fisdale. I'm sure there are a handful of others that... that Take that for data. <laughs> love that from David Fisdale. It, Greg Popovich talks about white privilege at great length, something that you wouldn't expect to see from an NBA head coach. All these guys just unafraid to talk about what they want to talk about, what they feel is important. What is their role in this fight so far? Well, I think their role is a pretty basic one. Greg Popovich has so much respect throughout the league among both players and executives that it's afforded him um, just a tremendous amount of leeway in terms of what he can say. And also, like, he's past the point where he needs the NBA. You know, the NBA, in so many respects, needs Greg Popovich more than he needs the NBA. And, you know, that goes, I mean... And Steve Kerr has just presided over the three best seasons, I would argue, of of any team, you know, in the modern NBA. I mean, the one year he doesn't win a championship, his team wins 73 games. Unreal. Um, I also think, you know, Steve Kerr, 
People have to know this about Steve Kerr. His father, Dr. Malcolm Kerr, uh, was one of the great global political thinkers um, of his generation. You know, and if he hadn't been killed early on in life, he'd be much uh, more more known. He was, of course, killed as a, as a, I believe he was the dean or president at that point of the American University in Beirut. Um, just a remarkable person and uh, wrote beautifully about the Middle East. He was murdered. And he, um, when Steve was, I believe, 18 or 19 years old, and, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I mean, Steve is also a very deep thinker. He's a global thinker. Um, he said incredibly, incredibly smart things about global politics and terrorism, in addition to what he's been saying about Trump. And he, like I said, he commands a tremendous amount of respect in the league. You know, the sort of person who people know that Michael Jordan respects and LeBron James respects. You know, he really bridges that generation. And so when they're outspoken and when LeBron's outspoken, one of the things it does is that it provides like this, this amazing pretext uh, for other players to speak out confidently. Because when the people at the top of the profession speak out, it provides cover for everybody else. That's an excellent point. I have to read this Greg Popovich quote because I think it's so relevant to this discussion. So there was a day not too long ago where Pop brought his players together. He wanted to show them an Emmett Till documentary. And this is what he had to say about that. Tears are coming down. And I say, boys, you play basketball. You know how important basketball is? Zippo. It's your job. You make money. Put it in the bank. Take care of your families. But there's a freaking world out there. And you've got to understand where we live. I just love that quote from Popovich. I, I think that kind of embodies this whole advocacy discussion and, and why they shouldn't stick to sports, basically. Well, yeah, absolutely. And But this is also, like, if you look at it historically, this is also why this platform of sports has been policed so tremendously. If you look at why... People like Muhammad Ali, Tommy Smith, and John Carlos were demonized so much. I mean, it really was because uh, you had a situation where um, where they were poor black men who all of a sudden had a microphone and a platform. And it's one thing if you want to use that microphone and a platform to sell Pepsi, but it's another thing if you want to use that microphone and a platform to speak about issues to the country that poor black men don't necessarily get to speak about. Yeah, and challenging the status seeing, quo. Seeing, yeah, seeing it's yeah. dangerous. And you're just you're seeing that continuing today. That's what this this latest nonsense is about as well. So I don't want to get off on a tangent about Jerry Jones, but that was I think a perfect example of his publicity stunt two weeks ago where he kneeled with the players in a show of what he called unity. It was a feel good moment for many who should have been more skeptical probably. But he never called out Trump directly or demonstrated any understanding of, of why the kneeling was done in the first place. And then we saw days ago that now any cowboy who doesn't stand for the anthem will not play. And the president, of course, whether or not it's, it's true or not, took credit for asking Jones to do this. So I'm using that as an example to ask you about something you touched upon on a recent Edge of Sports podcast episode. The frequency and sometimes superficiality of some of these pro sports protests just for good PR or for unity, even though it doesn't mean anything to some people, I think, and I know you believe this as well, could render the message meaningless. 
what is the risk of that happening and what can be done to avoid that? Is it just making clear why we're kneeling or why we're speaking out as opposed to just doing it for words that are just facades or because it's important and not saying why? Is it just mostly just showing your work, basically explaining? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, we, we have a real challenge right now. There's no doubt about it. Um, we have a challenge to make sure that the actuality of why people are protesting reaches the public eye. And there is there first there was an effort by the National Football League to hijack the message of these protests. Now there's an effort to just squelch it. And I think that people in the media have a role to play to explain these protests in a way that speaks to the names like Philando Castile and Alton Sterling and Charlena Lyles. If you're not saying those names, you're not being honest about why people are protesting in the first place. Uh, and so, so, yeah, no, it is. it was a concern. But I'll tell you something, like if we have the choice of the NFL either co-opting or, or trying to smash this dissent, I'd rather have them try to smash it because it's more honest. Yeah, definitely. And, and then there, there's something to push back against. As opposed to if it's co-opted, it kind of just disappears, I think, which would not be what we want to happen. Overall, public opinion has not caught up to the NFL player protests, according to recent polls. But as you and many others have pointed out, Martin Luther King Jr. was a polarizing figure and wasn't widely revered until much after his death. Muhammad Ali, too, whom you alluded to earlier, he was deeply unpopular after his stance against the Vietnam War. Are you more optimistic or skeptical? And I, I know it's usually more of a gray thing than black and white that these moral, equitable arguments we're now hearing express, expressed more and more will eventually win out over time. Um, I think that things are moving a lot faster because of the information age than in Dr. King's day. So you're already seeing polls shift towards the players. Um, but maybe that'll shift again now that the NFL seems to be buckling in the face of Trump. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen out of this. But again, polls should not determine what people think is right or wrong. Uh, that, that's, there's no courage in that. Um, courage is standing for things when they're not popular because you think it's the right thing to do. Maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. Maybe you have to accept that history will decide whether you were right or wrong. But, you know, Dr. King said that the arc of history bends towards justice. And if you believe that this kind of protest can lead to justice, then you need to stand with it, no matter what the polls say, no matter how many fans boo, no matter how much crap you get on it, about it over Twitter. We're a little too much on the same page because that was the quote I was just going to reference. It did not include that in the pre-interview notes to you, but... That quote, which is inscribed on the King Monument in Washington, D.C., I think is really important. I know Dr. King was deeply religious, but I interpret the quote as not being about divine destiny or even historical inevitability, but instead about advocating that people have to stand up and speak out about injustice. And by doing that, progress then will ultimately be achieved. It's not like it's just going to happen because people evolve or history evolves. I think we actually have to take active measures to ensure that that's the case. Is that kind of your understanding of that historic iconic quote too? Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing historically inevitable about any of this. Um, but this idea of feeling 
I think it's so important for the confidence of a movement to feel like you're on the right side of history and to be able to claim that you're on the right side of the history. That's very powerful. And it, you know, you, maybe you can convince yourself of that, even if it's not true. But I think people know in their heart, like, like if they really are on the right side of history or not. And like, I don't think the people who are trying to, for example, squelch LGBT rights, do they really believe that they are on the right side of history? Do they really believe that this is where the arc of history is bending right now? This idea of criminalizing people for their sexuality, do they really believe that? I don't know. Even if they believe it in their heart of hearts, I think the people who are on the other side can look at them and say they are demonstrably wrong about where the tides of history are turning. And this is about, you know, trying to, this is about knowing history. This is about trying to have a read of mass psychology. And this is why I'm very confident that just like there are people who are, who tried to smash Muhammad Ali are now viewed in a very negative light. The people who are trying to smash these NFL players um, are going to be viewed in a similar way. I really appreciate your time, Dave. It's been a pleasure talking with you. So fascinating and thought-provoking. So there was this article on NBA player advocacy I just read uh, that will be appearing in the November issue of Esquire by Bruce Schoenfeld. Terrific reporting in there. And I want to end with a quote and a question about it with a guy that I know you like and root for in the D.C. area, Bradley Beal. He asked Beal about the potential impact of NBA players speaking out. And without skipping a beat, Beal said, you know what? I think we could possibly save America. I think a lot of people would be inspired by that quote. I think a lot of people would say it's very naive do you think it's a little bit of both? What Essentially, what's your take on him saying that? Um, I'll tell you, I think Bradley Beal, I live in D.C. I'm a huge Wizards fan. I haven't seen that quote. That just makes me really happy to hear. <laughs> um, I don't think athletes can do it in a vacuum, no more than Muhammad Ali stopped the Vietnam War by himself. Um, there has to be the presence of a larger movement off the athletic field. There has to be a way that this can ricochet from the field to the streets and from the streets to the field where one side is able to amplify and support the other. That's what we need. That's what needs to happen. Um, I will really, really hope that Bradley Beal sees himself as part of that broader movement. That's not just about being an athlete who speaks out, but being an actor um, in social movements. Yeah, I I think you're right. It takes a village. It can't just be one segment of society doing all the work. We all have to come together together. And I really thank you for all the work you've been doing. You're really insightful on these issues. I hope people continue reading your columns, listening to your podcast, and following you on Twitter. Or if not, hopefully they've discovered you now after listening to this. But I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on.